0: Kroger,
1: fresh for everyone. On this episode of Newt's World, nearly a century ago, in a blockbuster legal proceeding that brought the attention of the entire country to the small town of Dayton, Tennessee, Attorney Clarence Darrow defended high school teacher John Scopes, who was accused of violating a state law that made it a crime to teach evolution. Three-time presidential candidate and former Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan, argued for the prosecution. In a daring move, Darrow called Bryan to the witness stand as an expert on the Bible and creationism. Darrow's seminal defense of freedom of speech helped form the legal bedrock on which our civil liberties now depend. Here to discuss his new book, The Trial of the Century, about Clarence Darrow and the famous Scopes Monkey Trial, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Greg Jarrett. He is a number one New York Times bestselling author, legal and political analyst, and attorney. He joined Fox News in 2002, after more than a decade of local and national news outlets, including NBC, ABC, Court TV, and MSNBC. Greg, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World.
2: Oh, my pleasure, Mr. Speaker. Thanks for having me.
1: It's a delight, and this book is really a fascinating book. I'm curious, given all the different things you've done, what led you to this particular book? What was it that fascinated you about Clarence Darrow?
2: Well, it started, I suppose, more than 50 years ago when I was a young teenager. My father was a lawyer and had this huge collection of wonderful books in our home on his bookshelves. And I can't say I read them all, but probably 90% of them. But the one that really struck me was this wonderful book by Irving Stone, a biography on Clarence Darrow. I still have it. In fact, it's sitting here right next to me. 1941 edition. So then, you know, it was probably about 30 years old. But That seemingly random act of just sort of plucking a book off my dad's shelf shaped the contours of my life. It inspired me to pursue a legal career. I didn't know it at the time, but it did. And I've been thinking about writing this book because towards the end of Stone's biography, he tells the tale In a very short form of the most amazing legal blockbuster trial of the century, it became known as the trial of the century, and it still is because it helped to rescue and solidify those things, Mr. Speaker, which we hold dear every day. Civil liberties, free speech, academic autonomy, and the indispensable proposition that nobody should be told how to think. The government is repeatedly getting in the business of telling us what to do, what to believe, what to think, what to say, and that's fundamentally wrong. And Darrow stood up to the government, and he reshaped public opinion and the banning of books on evolution, the criminalizing of a teacher who dared to teach the cornerstone theory by Charles Darwin – that became a thing of the past
1: how much of your fascination with a trial like this came from your own experience watching your dad in trials and watching him talk to a jury and trying a case
2: well it certainly had a deep influence on me so it was both darrow and my father my father i always regarded as a brilliant trial attorney he tried so many cases And I would often cut school to watch him try cases at the courthouse in downtown Los Angeles, just a few blocks from his office. And he would take me to his office on the weekend and during the summertime. And he taught me a lot about the law, how to research cases, important cases and what they meant. And he actually taught me the art of researching cases in his law library, which back before the computer, obviously. It was a very laborious process, and I'd make 50 cents, every case I could find for him. So I made a little money. But but the dinner table, my father would sort of begin the conversation by looking at me and say, okay, state your name and spell it for the record. I mean, it was like being on the witness chair and getting cross-examined by my father. And, you know, you sort of learn the rules of evidence that way. So... By the time I went to law school, I think I had a leg up.
1: I was going to say, how much of help was that in getting through law school? Oh,
2: tremendously. As I say, it was long before computers and you had to research cases in the law library. It was filled with books. Most students struggled to figure it out. I ended up teaching them how to do it.
1: But you went on to become a trial lawyer, right?
2: Yes, I was in San Francisco.
1: And yet- then you went off on a television crew. What led you from practicing law to television?
2: Purely serendipitous, like so many things in life. I sort of fell into television accidentally. A buddy of mine was auditioning for a television show. They did that back then. And we were going to have dinner afterwards. So I just tagged along for the purpose of giving a little support. And there was a mistake that people were lined up. I was standing there with my buddy and they threw on a microphone and shoved me in front of the camera. And I said, well, what the heck? So I do the audition. I get the job. He's still a dear friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was the beginning. For a while, I anchored a morning show on a UHF station and practiced law at the same time. It became too much. And so I took a sabbatical and I'm now on my 42nd year of a sabbatical.
1: <laughs> That's wild. But that means you're able to bring to this case... Both an understanding of the media and an understanding of trials, I think, makes you unique to be able to explain both what Darrow was doing and the kind of national impact it had.
2: Yeah. You know, when you're starting out a lawyer and, you know, you're grabbing every case you can, and I was with a young law firm and we tried everything. So I got a lot of experience immediately. I was in court the day I was sworn in to the California bar arguing a case in front of a judge. So I got a lot of experience. That practical experience has really paid off because I think I bring to the table as a journalist a lot of inside knowledge. I can understand tactics and strategy. I know what the lawyers are doing, and I try to convey it in the simplest terms to viewers and listeners. And so it's been a lot of fun, frankly.
1: When you're looking at all this, and I didn't realize this when we had chatted earlier, that you actually participated in your high school drama department, which produced Inherit the Wind, which was the play based on the Scopes Monkey Trial. So in a sense, I mean, for years, you've been sort of predestined to do this book.
2: <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I think you're correct about it. So I had read this Irving Stone biography on Daryl. And literally months later, I'm an underclassman in high school. And I notice on the bulletin board that there i going to put on a school production of Inherit the Wind, which I knew was a fictionalized version of the Scope's Monkey Trial. And so I thought, I don't know how to act. I'm a bit shy, but I'm going to audition. And I received an exceedingly small part in the play that required me to utter all of six words. I still remember the words. Do you want to share them with us? A photograph, Mr. Brady, a photograph. I played the part of a town photographer with a tripod, old-fashioned camera, and Brady was actually William Jennings Bryan. Again, it was a fictionalized version of it.
1: I just want to share with you the same kind of... I once played the pharmacist in Romeo and Juliet, and I think I had a similar number of words. So, our careers as thespians had very short participatory roles here.
2: The pharmacist meaning providing the poison, Right. Yeah.
1: Right. And you say like six words, like you shouldn't take this or something.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I didn't care that it was a tiny part. Being in the company of Clarence Darrow, even a fictionalized version, was all that mattered to me. And then my father took me on a trip to London. We sat in on the old Bailey criminal courts and watched solicitors and barristers in their white wigs arguing criminal cases. And on one night, he took me to the theater, and there was starring Henry Fonda playing the life of Clarence Darrow in a one-man play, and Jimmy Stewart sitting behind us, his longtime pal. And so this just greater inspired and animated my affection for the great man. And again, that's really the reason I decided to go to law school.
1: And Hair at the Wind was a very significant movie with very serious stars. Yes, Spencer
2: Tracy played Clarence Darrow, Frederick March played William Jennings Bryan, and unbelievably, H.L. Mencken, the legendary journalist who was there writing dispatches every day during the Scopes Monkey trial, was played by Gene Kelly. Now, Mencken was not a handsome man, <laughs> to put it politely. And of course, Gene Kelly is this suave, debonair, dapper, handsome movie star. There's the liberal Hollywood license that you take with works of nonfiction and fiction.
3: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
1: Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, the Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March to the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the -the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can pre-order March the Majority right now at Gingrich360.com slash book, and it'll be shipped directly to you on June 6th. Don't miss out on this special offer to pre-order my new book today. Go to Gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book. In the real world, in terms of Darrow himself, how did he become such a successful and nationally recognized attorney?
2: He started out as a small town lawyer. And in those days, he didn't get much education. I think he could afford to go to law school like Lincoln for a brief period of time. But he learned by being an apprentice in a law firm. And, you know, he was able to pass the bar. And he starts out as a small-town lawyer, and then he finally decides, I'm going no place. I'm moving to Chicago. And in a very short period of time, he becomes one of the most prominent attorneys in Chicago, and he's defending the railroads. And then he evolves into defending the unions. And that evolves into defending the damned. He became known as the attorney for the damned. He despaired the dangers of conformity and social control and government intrusion. And he upheld the right to self-determination and individualism. And, you know, the lost and the damned became his treasured clients. He gave them what they yearned for, compassion and hope. And it was something I deeply revered in Darrell.
1: It's interesting. He seemed to have an instinct for the underdog all the way through his career.
2: Yeah, he totally did. As I write in the book, the needy, the despised, the oppressed found a champion. Without him, they scarcely stood a chance. I actually quote him from his own autobiography. He said, I have friends throughout the length and breadth of the land, and these are the poor and the weak and the helpless to whose cause I have given voice. And that really speaks volumes about him. And yes, he was an agnostic, not an atheist, but an agnostic and a liberal. I'm decidedly neither, but that didn't matter to me because it wasn't politics that defined Darrow. It was his character, his moral values, his principles. That's what mattered to me.
1: In that sense, he you now is sitting there in Chicago as a very famous lawyer, and describe the context in which the trial shows up.
2: You have to remember that after World War I, there was this deep religious fervor that swept the country as Americans sort of turned inward. And Christian fundamentalism began to spread, and the religious fervor, led by William Jennings Bryant, who became the great fundamentalist leader, began pressuring states into banning books on evolution. Now, Bryant had a huge following. He was a three-time Democrat presidential nominee. He was Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of State. He had given an unbelievable, one of the greatest speeches ever given, Cross of Gold, it was called, in the 1896 Democratic Convention. And Darrow was there And they became friends as a consequence of that. But when Darrell lost three times the presidency, he began to move in a different direction. He became this great religious fundamentalist leader and he started pressuring states into banning books on evolution. And in Tennessee, he was able to force the state to pass a law making it a crime to teach. Darrow's cornerstone theory in public schools. And it was based on the premise that, oh my goodness, evolution conflicts with the story of man's creation as described in the Bible. It does not. They're actually harmonious. And theologians now accept, even our current Pope accepts, that evolution and creationism are harmonious. And in fact, Pope Francis has said publicly that evolution presupposes creationism, which was Darrow's argument all along. So Darrow is sitting in his office in Chicago and he opens the newspaper and he reads they've arrested and charged this young school teacher, John Scopes, for teaching evolution down in Dayton, Tennessee. And he also sees that his former friend and current nemesis, William Jennings, Brian, has joined the prosecution team. Bryant was so gratified with the laws he got passed that he decided he was going to help convict Scopes. And Darrow's sitting there and he's fuming and he's incensed. He sees this for what it is, a horrific intrusion on individual rights and free speech and academic autonomy and education. And he immediately volunteers for free to defend John Scopes. And that commenced the trial of the century.
1: Put the trial in context for a second. It's in a very small town. The judge himself is a very devout preacher. I mean, everything is sort of stacked against the defendant, wouldn't you say?
2: Oh, absolutely. There's a chapter, it's entitled Walking into the Lion's Den, which is borrowed from the Bible. And Darrow realized almost immediately that he was facing overwhelming odds. He was taking on popular opinion. The courtroom was packed with Brian supporters. The jury was composed entirely of devoted church members, only one of whom said he had ever heard or knew anything about evolution. Three people on the jury had read no other book except for the Bible. And the presiding judge, believe it or not, was an ordained minister. Who had been vocal and critical about evolution. Absolutely the worst person to preside over the case. But it was happening right in front of Darrow's eyes. And the judge's rulings from the bench consistently favored the prosecution against Darrow. And at one point, Darrow questions the judge's fairness and is immediately held in criminal contempt. So here we have Darrow. He realizes what's happening. He's down, but he's not defeated. And so he does something truly extraordinary in this very daring and consequential move. He does something that you never see in a courtroom. The defense attorney calls the prosecutor, William Jennings Bryan, to the witness stand as an expert on the Bible. And Darrow knew Bryan and he knew that Bryan's ego was as big as all outdoors and that he couldn't resist taking the witness stand and showing off to his devoted followers. And the judge is like, you can't do that. You can't, Mr. Darrow. call the prosecutor. And Brian stands up and says, I have nothing to fear. I want to take the witness stand. So the judge says, all right, well, okay. But I'll tell you what, this courtroom, I'm worried. There are so many people in the second floor courtroom. And it was a cavernous courtroom. He said, I'm worried about the floor collapsing. I'm going to move this trial outdoors to the stage left over from 4th of July festivities. So, I mean, they move it outdoors, WGN Radio. This was the first trial ever broadcast live to a nationwide audience. They quickly move all the microphones, they rewire, they go outside. There's this huge platform, and I show the photograph in my book. There are 38 photographs, but the most iconic photograph is... Daryl versus Brian sitting on this elevated stage, and you can see thousands of people looking on, and they were all Brian supporters. And that would soon change with the cross-examination by Daryl.
1: Do you think it would have been dramatically less impactful had Brian not jumped in?
2: There would have been a very quick conviction of John Scopes. The value Of putting Brian on the witness stand. And again, Darrow knew that Brian wanted to do it. Darrow's strategy was to try to show that Brian's interpretation of the Bible, that everything in it should be taken literally as written, was in violation of common sense and science and vast amounts of education and archaeology and paleontology and everything we know about civilizations, you cannot accept the Bible as literal. The Bible is a wonderful book, and it teaches us important moral lessons, and many of them are told, Mr. Speaker, As I think you know, through parables and allegory, the Bible is filled with them. So, one by one, Daryl starts going through some of the most prominent passages of the Bible about man's creation. Jonah and the whale, Joshua making the sun stand still, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the talking serpent and so forth, and how the Bible would have you believe that civilization is only 6,000 years old. And of course, we know it's many, many thousands of years before that. Huge civilizations were living on earth. And Brian had no good answers for any of this. And because Darrow was such a wonderful trial attorney with inexorable logic, he slowly but surely dismantled Brian, and the crowd that was so in favor of Brian, who expected to hear these logical explanations in defense of the Bible and creationism, suddenly realized, is this man a fraud? Have we been listening to the wrong man and paying attention to the wrong people, the fundamentalists? And Brian had doggedly clung to this righteousness that he mistakenly ascribed to virtue. And he had tried to force his religious ideology on others by enacting this law. And I describe what happens at the very end. The crowd turns against Brian. They're laughing at him. And the laughter only inflames Brian's panic. And at the end, the judge bails out Brian, slams down his gavel and says, enough trial has ended for the day. And the crowd of Brian supporters converged on Daryl, not Brian, to congratulate Daryl, the man they had so hated because he's an agnostic. They're actually saying, thank you. You've changed our minds. And Daryl looks back and there's Brian, a lonely figure, nobody around him, a broken man. And it was just five days later that Brian is still in Dayton, Tennessee, still hoping to resurrect his shattered, tattered image. And he lays down for a nap, a broken man, and he never wakes up. And I show a picture in the book of Brian in his casket, flag draped, being loaded onto a Pullman car and a train carrying him to his burial at Arlington National Cemetery, just outside Washington, D.C., And so it was a very sad epitaph to a once great statesman and a brilliant intellect who allowed his own hubris and self-righteousness to self-destruct.
0: There's a lot happening these days. Zumo Play.
1: whole notion of here's a guy who had been the youngest person ever nominated to be presidential candidate by a major party. He had dominated his party really from 1896 on, very integral to Woodrow Wilson's success. And here he is at the end of his career, having gotten way out beyond his capabilities, and in a sense, being publicly crushed. I mean, in some ways, Brian is an even more tragic figure than Scopes in terms of this particular trial.
2: Yes, and the New York Times described this epic showdown between Darrow and Bryan. And I'm quoting here from the New York Times back in 1925, the most amazing court scene in Anglo-Saxon history. That statement still stands today. I mean, the brilliant and devastating questioning of Brian Turned the tide in education. Historians: the fact is that Darrow lost the case, but he won the battle. What Darrow did shifted public opinion because people were listening on the radio. They stayed home from work. They wanted to hear what was going on. And all the major newspapers that were there published these banner headlines, and they actually printed transcripts of the day's events so that people could read it for themselves. And the public opinion dramatically shifted. It spelled the beginning of the end for the kind of religious intrusion that our constitution forbids. And as I write in the book, the wonders and benefits of science became untethered and free speech rights were saved and preserved and generations of Americans became Darrow's beneficiaries. And You know, some people say, wait a minute, trial of the century? No, that was the O.J. Simpson case or the Leopold and Loeb case or the Chicago 7 case or the Lindbergh kidnapping case. I mean, there are a lot of famous cases, as you well know, Mr. Speaker. And for example, I covered the O.J. Simpson case in Los Angeles every day for nine months. It pales in comparison to the importance of the Scopes Monkey trial. Because as tragic a case as it was in Los Angeles, it was a murder case. And there are thousands of murder cases every year in America. That was one of many. But this trial in Dayton, Tennessee, the trial of the century, it truly was because it was unique and so valued in our society.
1: The ultimate impact went way beyond a trial. It reshaped the way the nation thought about censorship And the way the nation thought about science. But at the same time, not only was Brian ultimately deeply harmed by his experience, it seems to me that John Scopes is also kind of a loser in this experience. That he's sacrificed as much because he ended up being a national figure when he wasn't really ready for it.
2: Yeah, I mean, he was an amiable, likable, shy, 25-year-old school teacher. He was mostly a coach, and he was just substitute teaching when he taught out of the chapter on evolution from the textbook. And after the trial, he couldn't go anywhere without people badgering him. He wanted to go to law school, move north, and tried going, but everybody expected him to be the next Clarence Darrow. And the trial haunted him. And there were people who hated him. And they let that be known. And at one point in time, Scopes decides, I have to leave the country. And he does. And he moves to South America. And he becomes an alcoholic because he is just so haunted by his role in this particular trial. And he tossed aside his aspiration to become a lawyer because he sat there and he watched Daryl, And he said to himself, I can never be Darrell. I can't come close to being Darrell. There's a picture of him two years after the Scopes trial. And he looks like he's aged about 40 or 50 years. It weighed so heavily on him and he became an alcoholic and he eventually recovered and he got married and he was a gifted person. He was a gifted writer. He eventually in the 1960s writes a autobiography and It's beautiful prose, and it provides incredible insight into the trial. And I quote it in our book because some of it is so incisive and important, what he had to say. But yeah, it ruined his
1: life. You mentioned earlier the cavernous courtroom. Does it still exist? Is that courthouse still there?
2: It does. I went there with my co-author, Don Yeager, about a couple of years ago now. The courthouse was closed at the time for renovations, but we met with town leaders and one of them was the archivist and he said, look, I got a key, come on with me. And he takes us over to the courthouse and he's got a key, lets us into the back door and he said, let me show you the courtroom. We go upstairs and he and the town leaders join us and they explain to me that the courtroom is unchanged. The exact same furniture... The same gallery seating, the bench is still there where the judge sat, slightly elevated platform where the lawyers were, Darrow and Brian were. And it's interesting, they're going to keep it that way. It has these beautiful, huge picture windows. And you'll see it in some of the photographs from 1925 that are high resolution in my book. I obtained access to those in a different archive. And you can see in some of the photographs, the newsreel cameras in the back of the courtroom. And there was a plane waiting with the engine running each day to fly the film to Chicago, where it was immediately distributed in movie theaters everywhere. And audiences flocked to the movie houses to watch some of the trial of the century. So the courthouse still stands and then laid out in that courtroom was an enormous book, leather-bound. He opened it up and you have to wear white cotton gloves because you know it's pretty brittle and so you don't want to damage it. In longhand are the court reporter notes from the judge's reporter, which I studied. And then we also obtained the original trial transcript, which is nothing like the movie Inherit the Wind. And in fact, It is more riveting and fascinating than the movie. Sometimes fact is more astonishing than fiction, and this is certainly a case of it. So the original trial transcript is what I based the book on.
1: That's really remarkable. This trial had been set up to test the whole concept of laws against teaching evolution. And when Scopes is found guilty, he pays a $100 fine, which, of course, was a lot more money back then. But that was it. And each side had made their case and the country had been decisively changed.
2: That's right. And the Baltimore Sun volunteered to pay the $100 fine for Scopes. You know, the funny thing is, and I relate this in the book, Scopes was almost a forgotten figure inside that courtroom during the trial proceedings. He never spoke. Darrow didn't want him to take the witness stand. He'd get beat up by Brian and other prosecutors, and it would just make matters worse, which is pretty much consistent with the advice I used to give my clients, stay off the witness. Stand. Scopes is sitting there in the courtroom, and he's watching all of this unfold. And at the very end, the judge forgets to allow him to speak before sentencing. And one of the lawyers on the prosecution side Spoke up and said, Your Honor, I think you've forgotten something. Under law, the defendant is allowed to speak before sentencing. And Scopes stood up in a very earnest, authentic way. And he said, This is an unjust law, and I will continue to do everything in my power to fight it. And he didn't really need to, because as I say, public opinion shifted so tremendously, so dramatically, almost overnight and the banning of books ended, and nobody ever again in Tennessee or elsewhere was criminally charged with teaching evolution. So Scopes may have not uttered a word until just a couple of sentences at the end, but his courage in standing up against an unjust law speaks volume about his integrity.
1: Greg, I want to thank you for joining me. Your new book, The Trial of the Century, is both a fascinating read and an important step in how America evolved the way it has. And I encourage all our listeners to get a copy of your book, and we're going to link to it on our show page. But thank you very much for joining us.
2: Well, it's been my pleasure. I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to talk to you about it. And I am looking forward, by the way, to your new book, which is coming out very, very shortly as well, Your books are always a great read, and I always learn a lot from those books.
1: Yeah, March to the Majority, which is the story of how we did the contract with America and how we got Bill Clinton to sign a lot of conservative reforms, comes out in the next few weeks, and I appreciate you noticing it. As fellow authors, we understand that, you know, you have to actually talk about your books, not just write them. (laughs) You have had personally an amazing career, and this book is a big addition to it.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Speaker.
1: Thank you to my guest, Greg Jarrett. You can get a link to buy his new book, The Trial of the Century, on our show page at newsworld.com. Newsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Media. Our executive producer is Guernsey Sloan and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
3: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX, now playing, and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.